Welcome to the Park Road Podcast for January 12th, 2020. Today's podcast features Amy Jackstein sharing a witness and experience entitled Sisters and Brothers, and Rustine sharing a witness in preaching entitled I Seen It on Facebook. I tell you my story only with the hope that it will prompt you to take the time to comb through your own life and find your own experiences that have shaped and formed your life of faith. Last week, Ladane and Tom explored the mythical aspect of faith. Today, our topic is the experiential dimension of faith. When have you experienced God. So in digging back through the files of my own life, I found tons of experiences. We could be here all day. But since so much of my life has primarily been trying to create spaces and places and environments that are ripe for you to experience God, it did take me a hot minute to come up with a few of my own personal experiences unrelated to experiences I've tried to create for others. So here are a few that I don't have time to tell you about. The obvious would be my ordination. Another one would be standing in the waters of baptism as I got to immerse our son and saying, I baptize you, my son, and now my brother buried in the likeness of his death, raised to walk in the newness of life. I mean, that's a pretty holy moment. Sometimes it's just when the choir sings and that note lingers in the room and you can hear hear it and you're just kind of left going, wow, that is God. Or when we were at First Baptist Church in Clemson and every Maundy Thursday service as we came forward to receive communion in the silence of spoken word, Adagio for Strings was playing, and it's a haunting melody. And it just, every time I hear that piece of music now, I'm transported to those moments in Clemson on a Maundy Thursday service where I truly experienced the presence of God. There were many times in my trip to the Holy Land, one that stands out to me, we went to Emmaus and we were standing at, in a chapel and the woman that I was rooming with, a Lutheran minister, just impromptu started singing and it, it, we were just all standing there weeping and didn't know why and I knew I had met the risen Christ in Emmaus like those other disciples had done in the story. There have been a very few sermons along the way that have impacted me in the experiencing God category. One that I remember was preached by a woman, one of the first women I ever heard preach, Susan Hull. She was not wearing man-like clothes, and I didn't know that you could be a woman in ministry and not wear man-like clothes. She had on big earrings, and nobody told her they were distracting like some people tell me my earrings are, which is rude when you do that. I'm just going to go ahead and put that out there. Um, she had on a big, um, she had on a big scarf and she was so herself. And I didn't know you could do that. I thought you had to do the other thing. 
And that was a real, I experienced God in her preaching. Molly Marshall's theology class, she would open every class with singing of a hymn, and she would close every class with the singing of a hymn. And it was like worship, being in a theology class. Took a hike to Pine Creek Lake in Montana, and it was, you'd get to the top and you just go, God! That's what it felt like. And then there were all those times as a child when I had a lump in my throat and I didn't know why. And I look back on that, that now and name it God and God's call in my life. But I honed it down to one experience. It was 30 years ago. So I want to tell you about 30 years ago at Princeton. I was about 25 years old. I was in my first job out of seminary. And it was the first time I had gone on a study leave. Never heard of these kinds of things, but it sounded great. The church pays for you to go and think or sleep or whatever you need to do. And I thought, why not go to Princeton? I mean, you walk across that campus and you just feel smart. The buildings, you look at them and you think, I am smarter than I thought I was. That's what you feel at Princeton. I do not remember the theme of that event. I do not remember uh, any of the lectures or any of the seminars. I can't tell you one person on any panel of the leadership. I just remember the closing night of worship. We were in a smallish chapel. The man preaching was older. He probably wasn't as old as I thought he was at 25, but he was still older. I know he was. He was seasoned, he was experienced, he was intelligent, and he was pastoral. He was a bit soft-spoken, but in a way that pulled you in, and it made you want to listen. And here's what he said that changed my life, and I experienced God. Sisters and brothers, and I just stopped. I'd never heard that before. Brothers and sisters, yeah, a thousand times in worship. Brothers and sisters, we are gathered here today in this holy place to do this and that. I had never heard anybody say, sisters and brothers. And I, I, I was just struck. And I knew in that moment that my words mattered. My words mattered about how I address humanity, how I talk about other human beings. My words matter in how I refer to God. And kind of all in that one experience of hearing sisters and brothers, my life was changed and I had experienced God. He started with me, sisters. I'd never been to church and they start with sisters. So I really try really hard to balance the way that I talk with brothers and sisters and sisters and brothers. And if I lean heavy on the sister side, it's because there's a lot of time to make up for, for a lot of people. But that was the first thing he said, and I truly, I experienced God in that moment. But he went on to say, sisters and brothers, our calling is very holy. And I could feel it start to rise up right here, like the lump in my throat. Our calling is very holy. And he said, our, 
Like he was including me as a colleague. It was a room full of preachers and ministers. And he said our calling was very holy with all of his experience and all of his intelligence and all of his pastoralness. He said our calling is very holy. And I thought about all the classes and all the papers and all the thinking and working through of my own theology that I had done and all the dreams and all the hopes that I had. And I thought about all the hands laid on my, hand, on my head at my ordination. And he said, our calling is very holy. And I felt more blessed by him, can't even remember his name, in that moment than I had ever felt before. It was an experience of God. My assumption is that there were other people in the room with us, like a whole chapel full. I felt like he was talking just to me when he said, sisters and brothers, our calling is very holy. Our work is very difficult. How did he know How did he know how hard this job was? Not this job, that job. This job too, but that job more. How did he know that my very first ministry job would be so difficult for me that I would find myself in our minister of music's office, who happened to be a very good friend by then, crying at least once a week, like literal tears, sitting in his chair saying, I just don't think I'm cut out for this. Isn't that, don't you hurt for her? I do. I really, I know her. I just don't think I'm cut out for this. I can hear myself saying it. How did he know? How did he know that I would be called to a church to be the minister of college students at First Baptist Church in Clemson? In the late 80s, early 90s, if you were a college student that went to church, much less decided to be very involved in a college ministry at a church, and you were Baptist, you also thought it was wrong for women to be in ministry. Like Reverend Amy Jacks Dean, an abomination. That's what it felt like for so many college students. It was so difficult to try to build a program. And who would know that I would be stuck in a church? And this was a great church, by the way. And I must have been cut out for it because I survived. But, and I have very fond memories of my time at First Baptist Clemson. But who would know that the people that were teaching college Sunday school and on the college student ministry committee were so set in the 1960s? And all they could tell me about was... You know, it used to be that the cadets would come from the university and line the perimeter of the sanctuary, lined up to join the church. That was 1960s. This was the 1990s. College students didn't do that. But their memory was that that's how it's supposed to be. And if I heard once, I heard a thousand times, we used to have 200 in Sunday school. Well, whoop. T do. <laughs> I had about 60 or 75 coming to Sunday school. College students coming to Sunday school. Can you fathom that in 2020? 75? I thought, this is awesome. And I never one time felt successful in that job. 
Not once in my ministry job. And he said, our work is very difficult. And he was right. And just naming that felt like an experience of God in my life. What could he possibly say next? Sisters and brothers, our calling is very holy. Our work is very difficult. Our Savior is very mighty. And I thought, yeah, I've given my whole life to him and the power of his teaching and preaching. Our Savior is very mighty. I just, I couldn't wait to see how he's going to end. By this time, I was on the edge of my seat. But I'll tell you that since that day in that Princeton chapel with that minister saying those sentences, what I'm about to say to you has been my, the benediction that I have used since that time every time I give a solo benediction, which is not real often anymore. And I prefer our benediction that Russ and I do to this one. But if I ever get a chance to offer that final good word of benediction, it came from an experience of God that I had 30 years ago with a man I don't even know his name. Sisters and brothers, our calling is very holy. Our work is very difficult. Our Savior is very mighty. And the joy of the Lord is shall be our strength. May it be so. Amen. In what could only have been a scene out of George Orwell's frighteningly prescient novel entitled 1984, if not for the fact that it actually happened at a partisan rally in 2018. The President of the United States, the leader of his party, warned his slavishly loyal subjects, what you are seeing and what you're reading is not what's happening. These are stunning words in a free society. Precisely like the paranoid propaganda that was regularly piped onto the streets and into the homes of Oceana that fictional land of Orwell's dystopian novels. Only trust the party, the residents were told repeatedly. If you need to know what to believe, we will tell you what you are seeing and what is actually happening in the world. We live in frightening times. Otherwise, reasonable and educated people cannot even agree on basic facts. Global warming is decried a hoax despite the charts, the graphs, the multitude of measurements, the distinctly dire data, despite the fact that the glaciers are receding in some places with a speed that is almost visible to the naked eye. I mean, literally, you can almost watch them melt away. But don't believe what you are seeing. We're told it's all fake news. We don't really know what's happening to immigrant children. This despite the fact that there are boots on the ground all over the southern border. Photographs and heart-rending reports from journalists and clergy, politicians and activists. What you are reading in the news is not really happening. 
That dangerous message is clear in the 1984 Orwellian fiction as it is in our 2020 reality. You cannot trust your own eyes. Do not rely on your own experience in this world. When you need to know what to believe, the party will tell you. Now, another aspect of this crazy world, which is our real-life home, is social media. Social media. Maybe the worst good thing that ever happened to this country. Because social media will tell you absolutely anything you want to believe. And it will give it to you post after illegitimate post, bandwidths of Bologna 24-7. From young earth theologies to flat earth conspiracies, from Hillary's human trafficking organization in that comet ping pong restaurant to the Donald ordained of God for this precise moment in our very fragile history. It's all there. And there's no need to doubt it as one post said it so eloquently, and I quote, because I've seen it on Facebook. I've seen it on Facebook. It's got to be true. Now, this is a sermon that I could not have preached when I started dreaming of standing in a pulpit every Sunday. The world of that childhood, which is quickly becoming a childhood long ago, the world of that childhood was not completely saturated with doublethink, another Orwellian term. People genuinely trusted Walter Cronkite. Do you remember? Genuinely trusted Walter Cronkite and the newspaper back in those good old days. Facts were actually facts in those naive years. But I could not have preached this sermon back then because it was the religion of my childhood that did not trust personal experience. Do not trust what you are feeling, sensing, experiencing. Only believe. Now that's the way Elvis sang it, but that was the message of the church. What you need in this life is a ticket to the next one, and experience will not get you there. Experience is for the temporary here and now. Experience relies too much on the body, which is too connected to the sins of the flesh, and experience will lead you down the wrong road every single time. What you need is saving knowledge of Jesus. And that knowledge is often counter to logic and rational thought and certainly counter to the irresistible tides of feelings and emotions of experience. The religion of my childhood relied on saving knowledge which came from a so-called literal reading of the Bible. Now, it was only many years later that I came to understand that personal experience is actually inseparable from the way we read any text. So, biased media, you ask? Yes, always. Every report you have ever seen or read anywhere, anytime is biased by the reporter and by you. All media is biased. It cannot be any other way. 
But that doesn't mean there are no basic facts there. So, it is biased in its writing, and even a supposed literal reading of the Bible is dependent on our experience. Age, gender, race, nationality, socioeconomic status, education, all impact the way we hear, the way we read, what we can understand. So our individual, personal, subjective experience will always determine what literal even means. Now, I'll put this in scientific terms, quantum science, the world of the infinitely small, just observing a quantum uh, event influences that event. What literally happens is partially determined, literally, by you seeing it happen. So, the unstudied sola scriptura religion of my childhood, you know, only scripture, The only scripture of my childhood was always wary of experience. So somewhere along the way, when I learned that the Episcopalians teach that truth is revealed through a three-legged stool, they call it, a three-legged stool which includes the teachings of the Bible and church tradition and experience, well, I started praying for all my Episcopalian friends right there. All two of them. (laughs) Oh, those poor Whiskeyparians who believed that experience could actually bring us to God. They were right. They were right. Why in the world could we ever have believed that we could be endowed with five beautiful senses in the image of God? But, not, uh, but that we should not be encouraged to use every single one of them in the spiritual life. Why? In his commentary on this text, Sibley Towner introduces the book of Ecclesiastes with these words. Ecclesiastes has always had its fans among the original thinkers of the Jewish and Christian communities. Now, the rest of us know and love some of its more lyrical passages, but on the whole, believers have found it at least baffling. From the beginning, serious efforts were made to exclude it from the list of sacred books. But we need to hear the author of Ecclesiastes out. Time and time again, one is driven to admit the truth of Ecclesiastes, even though one might not want to hear it. Here is the most real of the realest of the sacred writers. The most real of the realest. In other words, the one most willing to say, this is what I'm seeing in the world. Not shined over with prosperity gospel, God did it, God blessed you, God favored Clemson to win against Ohio State, none of that. None of that just unvarnished. This is what's happening in the world. And God is in it. Now, some see Ecclesiastes as too jaded, too cynical, but I have come to love this book because it is full of honest realism. When I look at the world, the writer says, here's what I see. You can be as good as you want to try to be, but the truth is the wicked do just as well. Sometimes they make it all the way to the top. 
And good or bad, as harsh as it is to say, everybody's fate is the same. Life stinks and then you die. It's an odd motto to be found in the Bible, but it's there in Ecclesiastes. That real world tension is what we see if we dare to be real, to open our eyes and reflect honestly. I think the writer could probably relate to Billy Joel when he sang, I'd rather laugh with the sinners than cry with the saints. The sinners have much more fun. Only the good die young. Yes, Ecclesiastes says, but they all die. We all die, and we're all just as dead when we do. So how is this good news? How is this cynicism This realism, this jaded experience with life, it doesn't matter whether you're good or bad, you're going to die in the end. How is this good news? I believe it is good news because reality is always preferable to illusion. Honesty is always preferable to delusion. Hard truth is always preferable to the trite platitude. And to acknowledge the harsh realities that actually exist and to claim faith. Well, that makes the affirmation of God a bold affirmation indeed. Armed with that claim of faith that God is with us in the experience of this world, we can celebrate Ecclesiastes' very here and now theology. It's a theology I would have disdained as a child, eat, drink, and be merry. No, that's for the sinners. But that's the theology of Ecclesiastes. Eat your bread with enjoyment. Drink your wine with a merry heart. Enjoy life with the love of your life. Long ago, God approved such goodness. What a great theology. What you are seeing with your very own eyes is happening. The very bad and all the good. See it. Name it. Live it. Because every real experience leads to God. May it be so. Amen. We invite you to learn more about Park Road at parkroadbaptist.org. Park Road is a progressive faith community located in Charlotte, North Carolina, encouraging independent thought, community service, social justice, and interfaith understanding. Today's podcast was produced with production help from Hugh Ashcraft, Brian Smith, Bruce White, and Rich Dower. Our theme music was composed by Brandon Michael Williams. Thanks for listening today. Grace and peace to you.